Remember last week? Chapter 5. There were some good questions at the end of class, and then there were some good questions <coughs> after the end of class. And I'm tempted to go back and revisit, a little, revisit them a little bit. Um, but, on the other hand, I do want to keep moving um, at a brisk pace so we can get through Tanya. In, uh, the, the, I think the goal of the, the course was we're going to finish 53 chapters in a year. So here's, here's what I'll do. I'm going to briefly just touch upon something that was asked after class was over last week, very briefly. And then what I want to try to do today is not only to cover chapter six, but I would like to see if I, I could get two or three chapters covered. Um, we'll see if that works. Okay. The question that was asked after last week, remember, okay, if you had to sum it up in one word, what was chapter five about? You are what you eat. In one word. You are what you eat was like five words. <laughs> What's a one word with chapter five? Chapter five about. Well, everyone said you are what you eat. Yeah, yeah but what, Torah study. Torah study, yeah. That's or that—that's a compound. Torah. Word. Torah. <laughs> one word. That's one word. Yeah, totally. So the question was, you know, basically, how does it work, and what Torah study qualifies. Um, as far as what we were describing before about that food type of thing where you are actually ingesting godliness and making it part of you. So, just ever so briefly, you cannot grasp the infinite. That's sort of a, a truism. How can you grasp the infinite? Because to grasp something, you have to get around it. To get around it, you have to get outside of it. And that's, that's what it says in the Zayar, or the Tikkuni Zayar, no thought can grasp you whatsoever. Hashem is unknowable in the sense that you can't fit infinity inside your mind, no matter how big your mind is. That's the paradox, and that's the beauty of Torah. If Torah is, Hashem gave us Himself in an encoded format, Torah is the finite code for infinity, which is why Torah never stops being decoded and unraveled. The more you unpack it, the more there is to unpack. And yet, it's in a finite format, to the extent that no one is even allowed to add or subtract one letter from it. So, that's the first thing to understand, that Torah is the finite code for infinity. Second of all, just a little bit about how it works, the mechanics of it. Um, when you study Torah, somebody was asking, the, the question actually at the end of the last class, or after the class was over, was about like, let's say somebody's studying Gemara, they're studying a passage in Talmud, <clears throat> and there's all types of discussion going on. And it's not necessarily practical. It's not halacha. Right? So here's the idea. 
Hashem has an opinion, which ultimately is not just his wisdom, it's his will, which is more powerful than wisdom. Will is more powerful than wisdom. If you really, really want to know me, find out what I like. Find out what I want. Not just what I know. So the fact that Hashem has an opinion, has a rotsin, a desire, a will regarding a particular scenario, that if Ruvain will argue such and such before the court, and Shimon will counter-argue such and such, that the halachic ruling between them shall be such and such, that's Hashem's opinion. When you know Hashem's opinion on the matter, you know His will. So when you're learning Torah, you are learning Hashem's will. You are getting in touch with what Hashem likes and dislikes. As encapsulated in these scenarios. And even if the scenario would never come to pass, it's irrelevant. Even if there's no practical application, it's irrelevant. The point is that you are finding out what Hashem's opinions are, what Hashem likes. When you want to become intimate with somebody, you find out what they like. Not what they need, because needs are fairly practical and universal, and what they like. What makes us idiosyncratic. So Hashem has encapsulated his deepest self into this format, which is A, like we said, the finite code for infinity, and B, it is the window to Hashem's will. Not just wisdom, but will. Okay, there's more to be said about that, but I don't want to dwell on it. For anyone who was just missing a piece from of their understanding of chapter 5, I hope that completed whatever, uh, whatever it is that needed to fill in the picture. Okay, so let's continue. Good, we can move on? All right, fine. Let's go to chapter 6. If everyone's okay with that. <clears throat> Chapter six begins with a uh, with a quote from uh, the wise King Solomon. King Solomon said, "This one opposite the other, or corresponding the other, did God create? That everything in Hashem's world is counterbalanced. There is a counterpart or mirror image." a balance in the universe. And that balance is between what? Good and evil. Good and evil, yeah. Holy and unholy. So until now, our focus has been heavily on which side of the equation. And I call it an equation because they are, at least in their... their format they're equal. Animal soul, the godly soul. Yeah, so which one have we been focusing on more? In other words, I'll, I'll, I'll change my question. Who's, uh, who's ten faculties and three garments were we focusing on? Which soul? Godly. The godly soul. Okay. So, in the end of chapter one we introduced the, the notion of, a, of an animal soul, but then we didn't really focus on it anymore. Chapter 3, we got into the ten faculties of the godly soul, which are uh, seichel and midas, perception and emotion, which are namely 
perception meaning the ability to apprehend godliness, emotion, the ability to feel emotions for godliness. Then in chapter 4 we got into the three garments, the modes of self-expression, which are thought, speech, and action, namely thoughts that are Torah-oriented, speech that is Torah-oriented, action that is Torah or mitzvah-oriented. Um, then chapter 5, we spoke about Torah study, the whole thing was about Torah study. So really we've been heavily focused on the makeup and the modes of expression of the godly soul. And we haven't, although I, <clears throat> I have, uh, what, is, what, is it, what are they called, the fairness doctrine, uh, I, I should disclose that I have been sort of sprinkling in stuff about the animal soul, but that's more my uh, elaboration, not the actual content of the chapters. <laughs> really, the chapters have been pretty heavily focused on godly soul stuff. So chapter 6 says... <clears throat> Okay, now what about the animal soul? Tell me about Tell me about the animal soul. Okay, fine, no problem. I'll tell you a little bit about the animal soul. The animal soul has a composition. It's made up of functions known as koiches and afish. Well, we, we, call, we have a special term for them. They're called, uh, if you want to use the Zoharic Aramaic, Sora Kisra de Masavusa, ten crowns of impurity. Uh, and they are Kochma Vinadas, three intellectual Kaikais or capacities, Chesed Vurat Vedas, Netzachet Gisayd Malchus, seven emotional capacities or faculties. Is this sounding familiar? Uh, it has three modes of expression. Machshava, Dibr, Maise, thought, speech, and action. I mean, this is the same thing we've learned about the godly soul. We've just renamed it all. Let me ask you a let me ask you a question. I'm going to tell you right now. Chapter two introduces the godly soul. Chapter three is about the ten faculties of the godly soul. Chapter four is about the modes of expression or garments of the godly soul. Chapter 5 is about the food of the godly soul. Only chapter 6 is about the animal soul. Why do you think we have all those chapters about the godly soul in detail, and then chapter 6 comes in and does the animal soul in one chapter? Why do you think that happens like that? Why? It's so simple. It's so simple. Why is it so simple? Because yeah, so <laughs> we learned it already. No, it's simple as that. We learned it, you know that everything we just said till now? Just flip it. Just flip It's the same structure. It's the same composition. It's the same everything. Just flip it. <clears throat> what does it mean flip it? Flip what? Perspective. The perspective or the, or, the, or the orientation or the trajectory. So, whereas when Godly soul, what was everything focused on? Everything is... It's, it, it's, its perceptions, its emotions, the way it expresses the perceptions and emotions are all targeted on what in the godly soul? God. On God. That's it. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. The godly soul is focusing everything on God. That's what it's wired to do. Okay, fine. And if we're talking about animal soul, just flip it. Now it's all focused on? And me. Self. 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 So the animal soul has 
intellectual faculties which are all about perceiving self, and emotional faculties which are all about feeling deeply about self, and thought, speech, and action modes of expression which are all about expressing myself. That's it, just flip it. The only little nuance and this is sort of like a, a hidden <coughs> aspect of the, the teaching, is that when, in chapter 6, at the beginning, when the Alter Rebbe introduces the composition of the animal soul, he says there are seven emotional faculties and three intellectual faculties. He flips it. He, does, he, does, he doesn't elaborate, but if, if you notice that detail, um, the explanation is, that in the godly soul, it is chiefly ruled by intellect, and in the animal soul, it is chiefly ruled by emotion. Now, that does not—that does not mean that the relationship we learned about before does not hold true anymore. Remember the relationship metaphorically between intellect and emotions. We described it as—I don't remember metaphorically how we described it. Parent-child. Parent-child, yeah. So in the, in the animal soul, intellect and, and, and emotion are also parent-child. But what happens in the animal soul is the children run the home. <laughs> so basically, I feel like whatever, you know, I, I have a desire. And then my feelings go to my intellect and say, now I need you to do two things for me. A, I need you to plan how we're going to get this without getting in trouble. B, more importantly, I need you to figure out the rationalization, how we're not going to feel guilty about it. But the relationship is still parent-child. In other words, you cannot feel for something you don't know or have knowledge of. And the more knowledge you have of it, the more you feel for it. The only thing is, after the child is born from the parent, the emotion is born from the from the, the, the cognitive awareness, that child comes back to the intellectual faculties and says, now you work for me. Now get me this thing that I want and figure out how I don't have to feel bad about it. Yeah. But the godly soul is goodness because it's focused on God. The animal soul is power of so to speak, right? Okay, so the question was, the godly soul is goodness because it's focused on God. The animal soul, I thought, was neutral. It's not good or bad. Fantastic question. Um, I want to take that in two different directions. Because essentially, you're walking into the next thing that the chapter does. So I want to take this in two directions. Actually, what you just did, your question, is the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, actually. All right, so the first part of it is, you said the godly soul is good. I want to talk about good. The second part, as you said, isn't the animal soul neutral? That's chapter 7. We'll talk about that second. So first, let's talk about the godly soul is good, because actually that's what happens right now in chapter 6. <laughs> He goes back, so, so, uh, so to speak, you know, he's going back and saying, let's redefine, or, or maybe it's not redefining, let's clarify for the first time what is good and evil, or holy and unholy. 
definitions of good and bad, right and wrong, um, in Tanya at least, are a lot different than I think the way we use it colloquially. I mean, the way we use it um, is sort of like nice and mean. Like a little toddler who gets mad. Oh, mommy's being a bad mommy. Why? Because I took the iron out of your hand? <laughs> <laughs> good and evil or holy and unholy in Tanya means surrendered or unsurrendered that's it that's it Kedusha is that which surrenders to God and therefore becomes an extension of godliness. So you want to be good, set yourself aside, and become a conduit. That's good. Good doesn't mean that it gives you a warm fuzzy. In fact, the warm fuzzy can even be an indication that it's not really, I mean, it's nice, but it's not good. Goodness means I become the tool. I become the instrument. It flows through me. Clear, transparent conduit. That's good. Now, now the, the godly soul is inherently that way. The godly soul is inherently that clear conduit. It is inherently in a surrendered mode. Then... You know, but we experience life as this package, godly soul, animal soul, body, intellectual soul, trying to make sense of it all. But the same mechanics hold true, which is surrender. I set aside my will, I become a vehicle for his will, that's called good. That's good. Therefore, what is bad? Bad means I'm getting in the way. Therefore, the term that we use, and this is the, the, the Kabbalistic term, so it's in Aramaic, as are many Kabbalistic terms, is Sitra Achra. You ever heard the term Sitra Achra? Mm -hmm. I want to learn two um, terms today that have to do with chapter 6. Sitra Achra is one of them. I'll tell you the other one in a moment, God willing. Sitra Achra is Aramaic for Tzad Achra, the other side. Negativity is known as Sitra Achra, which is a lot more helpful than calling it Ra, which Ra we translate evil or wicked. And when you say that, it makes you think it has to be diabolical. It doesn't have to be diabolical, it just has to be Tzad Achra, the other side. So if I ask you, hey, that thing you're doing right now, what is your express intent in doing it? If you don't say, I'm surrendering to God's will by doing this thing right now, you say, oh, so it's something other than that. It's tzad achar. It's sitra achar. The other stuff. There's holiness, which is absolute submission to God's will. And there's everything else, which is a pretty wide category. You don't have to go do terrible, overtly cruel, nefarious deeds to be in the realm of 
Tzad Acher, other side. In fact, it could be a behavior which is gen not only harmless, but generally considered a productive thing. But your kavona, your intention is selfish. So it's Tzad Acher. So there in chapter 6, we, find out, we finally find our definition of Kedusha, of holiness. Holiness is bittel, is surrender, submission. Non-holiness is everything else, everything but submission, everything but surrender. And it's a pretty wide category. A lot of stuff that you wouldn't expect to fall into that category, you start realizing, you know what? This is not an act of surrender to God. This is something else. And as, as soon as it's something else, it's Tzad Acha, the other side. Now, that was the first part of your question. Well, it wasn't even part of your question. It was more, it was more like the setup for the question about the godly soul being good. The second part was, what about the animal soul? You're saying it's bad? I thought it's neutral. Which, you're right, because I did make a point of that in earlier chapters of saying the animal soul is not inherently bad. It's not trying to do anything bad. It just wants to be comfortable. It just wants to survive. It can't help but if sometimes it ends up doing bad stuff. That's not its intention, right? So you ask me correctly, isn't it neutral or isn't it parv? I think the word you use was parv. So, yeah. You're right. It is. And this is what's going to... We're going to sort of transition from chapter 6 to chapter 7 right now. And I'll tell you where the transition happens. Okay? But this is what's about to happen. The animal soul is neutral. You're right. There's a term for it. So remember I told you we were going to learn two terms. So sitra achra was one of them. Sitra achra means the other side. Uh, the other term I want to learn today is klipa. Klipa means peel. Like a fruit has a peel. Husk, shell, however you want to translate it. The packaging. What's the Hebrew for klipa? Klipa is Hebrew. It's Hebrew. It's Hebrew. Not Aramaic. No. Klipa, no. klipot. The animal soul is from a realm of klipa called klipas neiga, which literally klipat means the shiny klipa, the shiny shell, if you like alliteration. Why is it shining? Great packaging. Hmm? Great packaging. It looks great. Great packaging. <laughs> it, no, but the shine is authentic. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not false advertising. Mm -hmm. No, it's actually the highest level of klipa. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Um, it's not lying to you. It's actually. It's telling you the truth, because the the klipas noiga the shiny shell is shining because it's translucent. The shine isn't coming from it, it's coming through it. If you think about everything that exists in the world, 
only exists. <coughs> if if I could get behind from out behind this table e more easily, I would get my own water. But is there any possibility? It's, it's, it's coming up. Okay, thank you. Um, everything in this world exists, and it only exists because of a spark of creative energy, which is essentially God. The godliness that's in everything. That's how it exists. Even evil. Because if God didn't want it to exist, it wouldn't exist. He's making it exist. And that's that spark. That divine energy. Or like it says, man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. So that word of God, that let there be, that spoken energy, speech is the metaphor to describe God's creativity. That spark of divine speech is in everything, giving it existence and life. The question is why we don't see everything then as godliness. And the answer is simple, because of the packaging. Because of the shell. The peel covers the fruit. Now, there are some fruits that are, there's a lot of peel and very little fruit. And then there are other fruits that are, more fruit and less peel, and you even have fruits like, well, I'll tell you something, this is a, this is a favorite vort of mine because it's my bar mitzvah parsha, parsha shlach. Um, it says that when Moshe Rabbeinu sent the spies into the land, they were about to enter the land of Israel, and they, which was then called Canaan, and he sent some spies, 12 spies, and it says that these days, meaning the days when the story took place, was bimei bikurei ho'anovim, in the days of the grape harvest, or when the grapes become ripe, which is a funny way of setting the time of the story, the time of the grapes ripening. I mean, if you want to figure out when it was, it took them 40 days to traverse the land, and they came back with ill report on Tisha B'Av. So it was 40 days before Tisha B'Av. But no, it's set as the days of the grape ripening, or the grapes ripening. So the Rebbe explains this beautiful homiletical explanation about how it's sort of like the grape is the symbol for the whole mission. Remember why the spies didn't want to enter the land. Well, maybe I should I should explain. Um, the Altarev, the Balatanya explains not in Tanya, elsewhere in in in, in Lukute Torah, uh, which is another sefer. The Altarev he explains why the spies did not want to enter the land, and uh, it's alluded to in the verse that they they complained, they lamented that the land is a land which devours its inhabitants, and what they meant by that is that earthliness, that involvement in the material world, will devour us. See, in the wilderness, we eat bread from heaven, and we drink water from the well of Miriam. And all we have to do is study Torah with Moshe Rabbeinu all day, and it's like being in yeshiva, and our meals are served, and somebody's paying for our room and board, and it's beautiful. And we're going to go into the land, we're going to have to build cities, and, 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 and we're going to have to farm, or we're going to have to actually work for a living, and it's going to be so distracting, and Judaism will not survive. And so when they came back from the land, they said, it ain't going to work, guys. Can't work. Forget about it. Let's just, let's just stay here. 
and um, they were wrong because the whole purpose of Torah is to implement it. I mean, most of the mitzvahs are either have to do with agriculture or with the temple and the sacrifices and, and with the land. And so they basically wanted to, to cut out a, most of the mitzvahs in order to have a theoretical Judaism, but they were afraid to do it in real day-to-day -day life. They wanted to be, you know, perpetual bachelors, Peter Pan syndrome. And by the way, which is why, it's interesting, after it lists the spies, it says, Kulam Anoshim, they were all men. <laughs> the the, the Alta says, you know why it says they were all men? Because that's a man's problem. A woman understands that the point of Ruchnias is to apply it in Gashmias. That spiritual ideals are real when you can live that way. You, you, you have a home, you have a family, day-to-day -day life. And men are more withdrawn, and they tend to see spirituality as the, as the abstract. Um, but at any rate, so Moshe is sending them out and saying, look guys, I want you to know something. You're going to see a world, and, and you're going to, I know what's going to happen. You're going to get scared of the physical world. You're going to get scared of getting distracted by it. But listen, it's the days of the ripening grapes. You get it? You ever take a grape? You hold a grape up to the light? Yeah, grapes are translucent. You see the seed. Imagine a grape, then, as the metaphor for life, for this world. Every single thing has a seed, meaning that spark, that divine word which lets it be. Some things exist in our world in, in, a, in such a manner where their packaging is so opaque, you cannot see how this belongs to God. Things that are, that look so selfish, they look so designed for purposes that are antithetical to what God wants, you look at it and you don't see God's ownership. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. But when you look at a grape and you see the seed, that's like when you look at klipas noiga, when you look at the shiny shell, when you look at something where, yes, I see the packaging, but I can see through the packaging. I can see the potential. I see how God made this, and it really belongs to him and should be used for him. So it's like, you know, one person can look at the cup of water, and they just see a cup of water. It's just uh, H2O. But another person looks at it and says, hold on a second, I see potential here. Wait a second, you, just, you have to just look a little bit closely, hold it up to the light, and if you look closely, you can see there's divine speech in here. And then you say, wow, hold on a second, there's divine speech inside of here? And then you literally, you say, Amen. I wasn't planned, I really wanted to <laughs> Brando once said what he learned about method acting from James Dean is that when you want the water, you drink the water. Just so you know, method acting. Okay. There's divine speech. There's Dvar Hashem. Now I have the Dvar Hashem in me. I just got it out of the water, I put it in me. 
and now it just lubricates my vocal folds, and now I get to speak a little bit more Tanya, I'm a little bit more able to focus on what we're talking about instead of thinking about the tickle on the back of my throat. Wow, look at what we unleashed from this cup over here. So that's the shiny shell. Now, if you'd bring me a, a ham sandwich and say, look, there's calories in there, there's energy in there, go ahead and eat it. I'd say, you know what, I know that there's energy in there because if there weren't godly energy in there, it wouldn't exist, but it's not accessible to me. I could eat it, I'd get calories from it, but I couldn't spiritually transform that energy into anything useful. So that's like an opaque shell, that's like a coconut. But it's like a coconut where I don't have the tool to ever bust it open. I can never get to the fruit. Now we're transitioning into chapter 7. What happens in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 is I'm moving from microcosm to macrocosm. What do I mean by that? Chapters 1 through 6 are microcosm. Chapters 7 and 8 are macrocosm, but the same theme. 1 through 6 is good and evil in me, microcosm my godly soul, my animal soul, my godly soul's faculties, my animal soul's faculties, my godly soul's modes of expression, my animal soul's modes of expression. That's microcosm in me. Seven and eight are the macrocosm in the universe around me. So in the universe around me, there's also good and evil, meaning that which is surrendered to God's will and that which is not surrendered. So there's Kedusha, that which is surrendered, and Klippa, that which is not surrendered. But within Klippa, and I want to make sure we're all tracking here, within Klippa, so the world around me has Kedusha and Klippa. You know, downstairs, if you open up the Oren, if you open up the Ark, there's a Sefer Torah. There's many Sefer Torah down there. Those are physical objects, but they are holy. So that's an example of something that is a physical object in this world, and it is holy. It is abjectly holy. You look at it, and it's not you have to think philosophically that Hashem made it be. This belongs to Hashem, overtly, clearly. That's holy, okay? That's a designated object. But the cup of water, for instance, had potential. It wasn't cashed in yet. It could have gone either way. could have gone either way. We had to make a decision. We had to be deliberate. We had to be mindful to make sure it goes the right way. So in the world around me, there's klipa, there's kedusha, very little kedusha. Most things around me are, are klipa. But within the realm of klipa, there are two sorts. There's the redeemable and the irredeemable. The redeemable klipa is the translucent klipa, where, yes, it's, it's neutral but I have the potential to make it holy. And then there's the opaque klippa, like the ham sandwich, where the potential is inaccessible to me. And therefore my relationship with it is I leave it alone. But um, the fact that we don't eat it, isn't there some holiness in that? 
The fact that we say no to it because God said no. The fact that we don't engage it isn't there some holiness in that. Yeah, but it's a different type of holiness. Um, you know, it's interesting. The energy of prohibited things are actually uh, is the energy of prohibited things is actually from a higher level than permissible things, uh, which is precisely why it's prohibited. It's too much energy for us to handle. And I, and I use the expression for us to handle, I, I, I'm using it on a couple of different levels. Um, you can't handle it means, uh, you know, pick it up, use it, manipulate it. Like, you know, the, the leather, the hide from an animal, I can handle it. Literally, I can pick it up and, I mean, I don't have the skill, but somebody could turn it into parchment for a, for a mezuzah or a sefer Torah or boxes for, for tefillin. And, and also, I mean, handle it like I can deal with it, I can tolerate it. Like, that energy is accessible to me. I can get that energy, like I did with the cup of water. I'm able to access, I can handle the cup. I can handle the energy in the cup of water. I can't handle the energy in prohibited things, so, so I leave them alone. Yeah? What about prohibited things that we don't leave alone? Like a ham sandwich is obviously like something that we won't touch, but like let's say Lash Chikara or Michael Shabbos or stuff like that that are in our everyday lives. Okay, so that's chapter 8. <laughs> but, but let's do it. Let's keep moving. If the questions are, are naturally taking us down the path, I'm going to keep going down the path, okay? So the question was, what? okay, but what about the ham sandwich? If, what, let's say, God forbid, I did get involved in it. So one of the things to understand is the term osr and, and its um, companion term, mutter. Asa and Muta are legal terms, permissible and forbidden. But they're also um, spiritual terms, like Matira Surin, he who unties the bound. Muta literally means untied, and Asa means tied down. When something is permissible, you ever go to the hotel and the alarm clock is bolted to the table? <laughs> because they're afraid you can take it. Yeah. Something that is also prohibited is bolted down. You're not going to be able to use it. It's the ham sandwich. You're not going to elevate it. You're not going to convert the energy. You'll get the calories, but you won't convert the energy. You cannot do it. It can't be done. Something that is mutter, that is permissible is accessible. I can make that conversion. I can take it from its physical form in which I find it, and I can turn it into spirituality, into godliness. Not just spirituality, godliness. The question is, is it tied down because it's prohibited, or is it prohibited because it's tied down? And, and, and the answer to the question makes all the difference in your attitude toward halacha and the restrictions of living a Jewish life. If you think that it is prohibited because it's tied down, what does that mean? Basically, what you're saying.
this thing is inherently useless to me. And so my father did me a favor and he gave me a piece of paper that said, don't bother with it. So now I don't have to go and waste my time trying to see if I can pick it up. I already know I can't. So the restrictions are doing me a favor by letting me know what is a waste of my energy, a waste of my time. So for instance, let's get real personal where emotions are involved. It's not a ham sandwich. Let's say it's a relationship, it's some, but, but, but I love her, right? And Torah says, but it, it's not a permissible relationship. So as much as there's heartache involved in that, God is telling you as a loving father, there's more heartache involved in the other because you you're not going to be able to redeem the energy that's in this relationship. There's godly energy in it, because there's godly energy in everything, but it's not accessible to you. You're going to waste your time, you're going to waste your energy. I don't want that for you. So I told you it's off limits because it's tied down. The other attitude, which is, I think, the more predominant attitude is... That you know, it, it's the 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 it's the exact opposite. That Hashem nailed it down because it's prohibited. Why is it prohibited? Well, that's arbitrary. And now, just to enforce it, because he doesn't trust you, he nailed it down. Like you're not allowed to take the clock from the hotel, but they don't trust you, so they nail it down. They bolt it to the desk. So it's not enough, I tell you, don't waste your time with the, with the ham sandwich. I bolt it down. That's it. Hashem created the world with all types of klippa. Well, not all types. Two types of klippa. All types of things which fit into one of these categories. And let me ask you this. Proportionately, is there more redeemable klippa or more irredeemable klippa? Is there more stuff that's neutral and potentially Redeemable or more stuff that's irredeemable? You look around the world, 99.9% of the world, I don't know if that's an exact number because actually 73.8% of all statistics cited by rabbis are made up on the spot. But 99.9% of the world is redeemable clip-up. There's very, very little stuff that, that God tells me, don't waste your time on it. You know, like, if, I, if I'm building a new building, building a shul, building a Jewish center, pretty much all the building materials that I'm going to entertain using are permissible according to halacha. And then all that stuff, the trees and the stones, and the, that all becomes elevated from neutral to, to holy. In fact, the only instance I could think of of prohibited building material would be if I stole some building materials. So if it's stolen, so then ill-gotten gains become prohibited. You can't elevate it. But most of the world is potentially holy. And, that, and that's the way to look at it. The world is a great... If you look, if you hold it up to the light, and the light is the perspective that we get from Tanya. If you hold it up to the light, you see the spark inside. You see, it's a, it's, there's potential. We can convert the energy that's in the water or, or in the beams of, the, of the, the walls around us that allow us to come together and study Torah. Or the tree that became the, the paper 
to make the pages of, of the Sefer. Or, 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 or the kosher food that you feed your children, which they use in order to, to daven and to do mitzvahs. And most of the world is neutral and can be out of it. Of like not usable, let's say building materials, like if yeah. someone would to use wood that was from Shemitah that they weren't allowed to use, or something like that. So that's something that's intrinsic. Okay, great example. So you said wood from, from Shemitah. Okay. Um, that's actually a very good question beyond my expertise. I know that fruits of Shemitah are prohibited. I'm wondering if the wood is as well, and I don't flowers know. Flowers there to troll. People don't take flowers also during Shemitah. They're like very careful. Yeah, I don't know about the wood. But let's, let's, let's say, just for an example, um, the first three fruit-bearing years of a tree, which is known as orla. So those, that's unkosher fruit. When do you have unkosher fruit? The first three fruit-bearing years of a tree. So that would be irredeemable. That would be irredeemable. But what makes it the same thing? Like what infuses one thing with a kedusha that it can't be usable? God's will. God's will determines. I want you to use this. I don't want you to use that. That's what makes it a different energy. <coughs> and halacha is our guide as to what God likes. Like we were saying at the beginning of the class when we were reviewing chapter 5. So God says, I want you to use this. I don't want you to use that. This is compatible spiritual energy. This is incompatible. This is part of my plan. That's not part of my plan. Or it's part of my plan, but the part of my, it's part of my plan in as much as it shouldn't be used as part of the plan. If you follow what I'm saying. But the question was, what if I got involved in the ham sandwich? God forbid. Okay. It's irredeemable. Irredeemable. With one exception. To preserve your life? Um, preserving your life is, is sort of a dispensation, but it doesn't transform it. There is one way where the irredeemable can be redeemed opaque klipa can become elevated. And that is after the fact. Not intentionally, not as plan A, but after the fact, let's say I got involved with it, God forbid. And now, not only do I stop doing it, there are levels in chuva is what I'm saying. Because one level could just be, I've done that, I'm I got it out of my system. I'm not doing it anymore. Okay, so that's one level of tshuva. But it doesn't really mean that you're better for having had that experience. It just means it's behind you now. Then there's another level of tshuva, a very high level. Tshuva out of love for God. Where one says, I've done it. It pains me deeply that that was ever part of my life because it is, it means that there was a separation. I put a separation up between me and Hashem. And because I know what that separation means, because I've lived it, I'm so much more careful, I'm so much more vigilant today than I would have been had I not been through this experience of estrangement. You know, imagine a guy down in, you know, in the subway station who's standing back by the wall. And you tell him, no, no, you can come all the way up to the yellow line. And he says, I know, 
But one time I was standing at the yellow line and the train came by and knocked my hat off. And that was enough of a scare for me that I stand back by the wall. So it's like a person who's in the desert and really appreciates water. He's been in the desert and now he appreciates water. A person who experienced the, the separation, the self-imposed, because God didn't make me do it, I chose. A person who experienced the self-imposed estrangement, if he comes out of that more sensitive, if he comes out of that cherishing and preserving and protecting his relationship with God more than he ever would have had he not been involved in that darkness, he just turned that darkness into light. That whole experience becomes a net gain. Now, you can't do it intentionally. But after the fact, that is the way that even the irredeemable can be redeemed. With tshuva. Not just tshuva, but with that high high level of tshuva, which we call tshuva out of love, which is knowing what I know from having been involved in what I was involved in, I am now more vigilant than I had ever been. I wish I never had been through it, but having been through it now, it actually propels me to be closer or to seek greater closeness than if I had not been through it. Yeah? Let's say it's in a relationship. You're saying one notices a strange estrangement from God and that pains him so much that there's a student from love. What if it's the pain of how one behaved in a relationship, let's say, that pains him so much that the chuva is... You know, I, 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 because of that pain, I, I'm vigilant on doing it differently. So the question is, is that the same thing? Because let's say the other person in that relationship is also godly, spark of God. Like, right. So you're asking in a specific that you're asking about this um, this concept applied specifically to how you treat others. No, not if it how how we explain that it applies, and not just to how you treat others, but I'm sure there are a lot more examples. Like the general term is, I recognize this separates me from God. And what I'm asking is, suppose I recognize this separates me from, let's say, a loved one or yeah. or a, a goal in my life. But you're asking, but I'm just trying to clarify. You're, you're, you're using human relationships as the analogy or the analog? You I don't know what the question means, but as one example, an analogy. As an example. Okay, that's what, I, that's what I said in the beginning, that you're using it as an example. But not the only example. That's right, an, an example. Right. Indefinite article and example. I didn't hear it the first time. Okay. <laughs> so, my, my answer to that question is, thank you for giving me an opportunity to go back to chapter 6, because I wanted to review anyways. <laughs> and I want to say, why do we have relationships with people? I'll give you, a, it'll be multiple choice. <laughs> is it because we're social animals, and we crave companionship? And therefore, you got to be nice to people because if you're not, they don't let you hang out with them anymore. Or is it because they are God's children? And one way that we worship the Father is by treating his children with love and respect. Well, it's probably too, but Hashem made it easier for us by giving us. So let me reframe the question. Let me reframe the question. Which is holiness and which is the other side? 
this is demanding stuff, and I'm not going to pretend it's not. Tanya is demanding. <clears throat> when you really study Tanya, you know what you realize? That if I'm nice to people just because I'm a nice person, that's not holy. That's other side. Now, within the realm of other side, I guess it's a pretty pleasant place within other side to be. It's like, it could be other side, uh, I want to sit by myself and eat seven-layer cake. Or it could be other side, I get a warm fuzzy out of being nice to people. But it's still other side. The reason that we're supposed to be nice to people, our loved ones, strangers, whomever, is for one reason, because that's what God wants from us. So there's a difference between being nice and being holy. All right, let's review. Let's review. Let's because we covered a lot. But yeah. In the end, it comes out the same. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you how it doesn't come out the same. It doesn't exactly come out the same because in the end there is, like we say when we study uh, Talmud, you know, what's the nafkamina? What's the practical difference? The nafkamina would be uh, when it becomes inconvenient to me, when it, when it doesn't fulfill me anymore, when I don't find it personally gratifying. So if I'm doing it from the very beginning as an act of surrender, I wasn't looking for fulfillment. I'm treating people nicely because that's an act of surrender to their maker, who's also my maker. Yeah? You know, oh, yeah? Um, what happens, though, if you don't do Teshuvah and you still have that, the klipa of the... Oh, you want to ask heavy questions. What if you, you got involved in the negativity and you don't do Teshuvah? Okay, so there's... I'll tell you one thing. In Exodus, we don't talk about this very often, but there's one place in Tanya that does, and that's chapter 8, and that is Gehenna. It's not a focus. We don't talk about afterlife. Not, we don't focus on the reward part of it either. We're more about, you know, making a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. Um, but yeah, there is one place in Tanya that talks about Gehenna. It talks about purgatory. Because it's not possible for everybody to do tshuva for every single thing. Well, I don't know if it's not possible, oh, okay. but... It's not Difficult. It's, it's not common. It's Let's not say it's common. not common. Okay. And if we have involvement in negativity that we bring with to, we bring with us, this is morbid, but we bring it to the grave. Uh, it'll be removed. Oh, <laughs> the, there are methods. I don't want to blow up. There are methods for cleaning it off. Um, wow. What are those methods? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, as long okay, as long as we're getting into the scary hellfire part of Tanya, which is literally just a, a few lines, but as long as we're getting into it, let me give you the real. Not only are we going to have to work off any of the negativity of the opaque clipper, the irredeemable clipper that we got involved in. If you're ready for this, let's say we got involved in the translucent clipper, the redeemable stuff, the neutral stuff that we could have made holy, but we didn't. We used it selfishly. Like the cup of water, you know, but, you know, well, a cup of water is really hard to exploit. But <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's say, you know, a, 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 a nice uh, slice of uh, chocolate babka in the morning, right? So that could go either way. I could use that for a better davening, which is by the way, precisely why we eat before davening. 
Um, I could use, or I could use it just for the fun of it, you know, just for its own sake, you know, just because I like, I like babka. And it's not treif, it's babka, it's kosher. But when we misuse kosher things, like food, or the other example, he uses two categorical examples there. One is kosher food that one uses indulgently for just for the sake of liking it. The other example he uses is um, intimate relations that is done just animalistically, selfishly, just because a person likes it. So you're taking something that's neutral that can be elevated, and instead you're denigrating it because you're using it for the soul desires of the animal soul. So we have to we have to do chuva for that stuff too. Which the chuva for that is basically simple: is get back on track and use things for the purpose that they're meant to be used for. But if we don't, then we got then we got to work that stuff off as well. And there are modes of purgatory that clean off that residue as well. Okay, I, I, I want to do a 30-second summary because we're two minutes over time and I really want to end on time and we're already not on time. So let's do a 30-second summary. Um, chapter 6. The animal soul has... I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I'm going to do lightning round. How many faculties are in the animal soul? Ten. Okay, and they are... What are the two categories of faculties? Intellect and emotion. I heard someone say emotion and intellect, which, yeah, I got what you were saying. Very good. I liked it. Okay. Um, and how many modes of expression? Three. And what are they? Thought, speech, and action. Fine. Um, what is the definition of holiness? Surrender. Surrender. Okay. And what is the definition of non-holiness? Everything else. Right. Okay. That's chapter six. Um... What are, oh, and one more thing from chapter, from chapter six. Um, what kind of klippa is the animal soul? Klippas noiga, which we call neutral or redeemable, right? Now transitioning to chapter seven. The world around us is mostly made up of what kind of klippa? Klippas noiga, redeemable, transformable, you can elevate it, right? And then a little bit of, oh, and why, what, what is uh, prohibited? Asr means also not just prohibited, but tied down. tied down. And mutter is not just permissible, but untied. untied very good. And uh, what if, now let's do a little chapter eight, we get involved in the irredeemable. <laughs> so tshuva on a higher level, tshuva out of love, and we can retroactively redeem it by turning our lowest point, our lowest spiritual experience into our... Um, we call it, you know, call it hitting bottom. It's like the end of your life, but it's the beginning of your life. Um, your, your moment of spiritual bankruptcy becomes the, the springboard to take you to higher levels. And, yeah, okay, so that's, we, we finished, uh, I'm going to say, I'm just going to make a decision here. We have finished one through eight. Sound good? You're comfortable with that? Nemir Tzashem next week. Let's start with chapter nine. Thank yeah? you. Okay.